the teachings of the apostles, or the catechism of the early church. Join Pastor Hook in today's teaching of the Didache. Uh, We have been in the Didache, and uh, we finished chapter 14, but now we're going to chapter 15. Have you ever wondered uh, how the early church structured itself? Um, We're going to get into that today. But the first thing I want to do is I just want to read the first part of chapter 15 of the Didache, which goes like this. Appoint, therefore, for yourselves bishops and deacons, worthy of the Lord, meek men, and not lovers of money, and truthful and approved, for they also minister to you the ministry of the prophets and the teachers. Therefore, do not despise them, for they are your honorable men, together with the prophets and the teachers. So, it appears that there are, in the early church, they created these positions called bishops and deacons. Now, If you'll remember, after Jesus ascended, he did not specify exactly how the mission was supposed to be accomplished. He did tell his early followers, this is what I have for you. This is the mission. And the mission is to go make disciples of all nations. That was the mission. But as far as getting there, Jesus did not say, okay, you have to create this office and this position, these types of people and all that sort of thing. Why didn't he do that? You would think that would have been very helpful except that Jesus knew that this was going to take a long time and that it would happen over, uh, well, right now, 2,000 years. And over 2,000 years, so many changes happen in society that, that the way that this is done may change, right? Originally, there wasn't even, I mean, originally, the early church, what they had was the stories about Jesus. Uh, if anybody could read uh, they did read, but it wasn't um, not everybody in the not everybody in the culture was able to read, and so you had to have people that could read and people who could interpret and all that sort of thing. Uh, and that worked for a number of years until they started having scrolls that they could write on, and and people, you know, got a hold of books, and they were very, 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 very expensive. So maybe one congregation might have you know one book, and then they shared that. Of course, then when you got into uh, the 1500s, then you had the Gutenberg Press, uh, and then books became very, very prevalent, and now we have the internet, so information is prevalent, and competing information is prevalent. And so uh, the way that we carry forward the mission will be, it changes over time, and it should change over time. That's why I think Jesus never gave us uh, a specific script for how we were supposed to accomplish the mission. He gave us the goal and the mission, but he left it up to us, the church, to to figure out how to accomplish that mission. Now, it's interesting that he says, appoint for yourself bishops and deacons um, because they minister to you in the ministry of prophets and teachers. Now, I find that fascinating because it is so true. Um, if you'll remember... Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about this also. Um, In Ephesians 4, beginning at verse 11, Paul writes this. So Christ gave himself, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the Apostle Paul identified within the body of Christ, this is within the body of Christ, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, so 
the way I read this is that every Christian uh, probably at some level needs to do some of these things. At some level, a Christian needs to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, or a teacher to love other Christians. So for example, if you're a, a, a parent, uh, you are going to be a teacher to your, to your children. You're also going to be a pastor to your children, right? You're going to love them and care for them as a pastor loves the sheep. Um, so, and at some level, a, a parent might be an apostle or a prophet or an evangelist. Now, they might have skills or gifts in one of these areas more than others, and that's a great thing because we all have different skills and gifts. So Christ himself gave to his church people who have the gift of maybe an apostle, a prophet, evangelist, a pastor of his teacher. Um, And uh, I've shared this before uh, somewhere in one of our Bible studies, but I believe my gifting is that of an apostle. Uh, I believe that if I look at the definition of an apostle, that is basically someone who likes to go out. It's apostello, which is to send. So the community sends somebody out into a new culture to learn about that culture and to love that culture and to understand that culture. And that's, that's basically, if I think my major gifting is that of an apostle. But that doesn't mean that in my job as the office of public ministry in my church that I don't also have times when I'm a prophet, an evangelist, a pastor, and a teacher. Uh, because all those gifts are necessary to forward the mission of the church. So what happens if a community of believers come together? Well, you're going to find that some of them are going to be, you know, have the gifting of an apostle, some as a prophet, some as an evangelist, some as a pastor, and some as a teacher. So somebody has to come and organize those people together so that they share their, uh, they share their gifts to, uh, to do the work of the church. Um, and that would be then where I think, uh, and if you just look at this, that's where I think bishops and deacons come up. Uh, therefore, appoint yourself bishops and deacons, and these are people who are meek. They're not lovers of money. They're truthful. They're approved because they minister to you in the ministry of prophets and teachers. So, and it doesn't say, uh, it doesn't give all the giftings, the, you know, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, but I would put all those there. So you need a church structure that comes together and, and brings all those gifts together to do the work of the church. Uh, and uh, in the early church, they called that bishops and deacons. And we still have bishops and deacons in churches. Um, but... You can imagine that over 2,000 years that the structure of a church modifies in order to get the work done. Now, the Roman Catholic Church, the way it's structured is that they have uh, one bishop who is uh, appointed to be over all the other bishops, and that is the bishop who's the bishop in Rome. Now, if you remember, a bishop is in charge of, uh, of a district, the, uh, a diocese, uh, a smaller collection, a smaller localized collection of congregations uh, is typically ruled by a bishop. And if you have a bishop, then 
uh, in the in the Roman Catholic Church and in the uh, of, uh, the Episcopal Church or the uh, the Church of England, then if you had a bishop, you also had a cathedral. So anywhere you had a cathedral, that cathedral had a bishop, and that bishop was in charge of a regional localized uh, assemblage of congregations. So in our particular church polity, we have what's called a district. Uh, and so that district has 350 congregations, which is a lot of congregations because each bishop is to minister to each of the pastors or the clergy in those in those specific congregations to kind of bring unity to the, congreg- to the localized congregations. Uh, and there's no way that any one bishop or president in our in our terminology can can manage to you know to know and understand and to love 350 different clergy that's just almost impossible um you know maybe 10 or 15 or whatever but um so in the roman catholic church you have the bishop in rome who's called the pope uh and in their terminology and then you have bishops and each of those bishops are in dioceses which are local assemblages of congregations and then within each congregation you have clergy uh, and then within each congregation you have lay people and that sort of thing that's kind of the uh, that's called the episcopalian uh, way of organizing a church and the episcopalians do that uh, and and historical lutherans do that right they came out of the church and they did that uh, and so that's how they do it. Well, John Calvin uh, in Calvinism decided to organize it differently. And uh, he organized under what was called the Presbyterian polity. And the Presbyterian policy differs from the typical, uh, from the Episcopal or the Roman Catholic uh, polity. Polity means organizational structure. So maybe instead of using the word Polity, I'll use the word organizational structure. The, uh, the Presbyterian structure, basically they were fighting against the Episcopal structure. Uh, and so they gave a lot more authority to the congregation. So the local congregation is actually ruled by a group of elders, uh, which, is, which is a church board or something like that. In the, in the Presbyterian church, I think it's called the session. So in the... Uh, uh, in each local congregation, you have kind of like a ruling board, and then they form together into presbyteries, which are like the uh, which are like a diocese or a uh, or a, uh, a, a or a district, and then and then they have like one synod, right? Which is a which is a congregation, which is a collection of dioceses or presbyteries. So it's kind of a, it's a, it's a very similar to Episcopal, except it gives more authority in the local congregation to uh, the elders. And, and these are lay people. Uh, the lay people kind of come together and they, uh, you know, decide how the church is moving forward. And then um, they also report to the presbyteries in the, in the synod. So it's, it's very much a lay-led um, I believe, because I'm not Presbyterian, uh, way of doing it. And then you have a Congregationalist. Now, the Congregationalist kind of came out later. 
And the congregationalist polity basically means that each congregation is its own, its own rule, right? So there's nothing higher than a congregation. Uh, the congregation comes together, they decide how they're going to move forward. Now, what's the advantage of a congregational rule is that as ways and methods of reaching out change, a congregation can, can say, we're going to go in a new direction and boom, they go off in a new direction. So congregational rule, and you, you may even know of congregationalist type churches, right? There's even a whole, whole church body called congregationalist. And in those congregationalist church bodies, the highest rule in the congregation is the congregation. Uh, and then they form loose associations of congregations, you know, to, to do some of the stuff that is helpful because it is really helpful to have a synod. Uh, you can you can create uh, your own materials uh, for all sorts of things. Um, in other words, each congregation can't produce. It's very, very hard for a little tiny congregation to produce all the stuff that's necessary to do all this, like Bible studies and um, and, you know, hymnals and all that sort of thing. So what happens is congregationalist congregations come together. They pool their resources as, a, as an association of congregations and they create all the materials necessary for that church body. So what's interesting is that the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, of which I'm part of, um, in which we're a part of, um, uh, actually is a congregationalist type structure. The highest rule in an LCMS congregation is the congregation. And the reason for that is very interesting. I won't go into it, but when Lutherans came across the pond from Germany over to the United States, um, they had to try to figure out how to reconfigure Lutheranism to work in the United States because the United States was very much individual rule. That was kind of the way that the United States, you know, is set up is that, you know, government closest to the people is the best type of government. Well, the same thing is true with congregations. Congregations closest to the people are the best. So they created congregational rule and then they joined together to form uh, so in our case, the LCMS, which is a, an association of congregations, uh, and the LCMS is voluntary. We can join the LCMS. We could leave the LCMS. I mean, I'm not proposing we do that, but it's a voluntary thing. And uh, so we come together and pool our resources to do the work of the church. But the highest rule in the LCMS is the church, uh, the local congregation. And within the local congregation, what is also interesting is that we kind of give equal um, representation to both the pastor, the clergy, and the lay people. So every three years, we'll have a local district convention, or, uh, or every three years, we have a, a, a nationwide LCMS convention. And at that convention, to represent each congregation or to represent each district, you have both a pastor and a layperson. So there's equal representation uh, at the national level, both from pastors and from local lay leaders. Why is that? Well, it's because pastors historically, um, you know, mostly concentrate on word and sacrament. Those are the, th that's what they spend their time concentrating. So they don't spend their time concentrating on the organizational structure and all that sort of thing. That's really helpful for a lay leader who is a typically is a business person, 
uh, and that business person would come to, you know, bring their business acumen and business skills into a congregation. And so, um, and that's how, that's how, uh, that's how the LCMS is, is set up, which I just, I'm just, I really think that is a phenomenally good way to operate. Um, the, the downside to the Episcopal polity, which is basically the Roman Catholics, the, uh, the Episcopalians, uh, mainline Protestant churches, all of those things, the Episcopal polity means that every decision at some level comes up to the head guy, like the Pope, and he makes all the major, 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 major decisions. Um, and, and he may not understand the local conditions on a local congregation that his decision is impacting. And that's the danger. I mean, it's the same thing with the federal government in Washington, D.C., here in the United States, making decisions for a little burb called Vail, Arizona, that... Um, they have no idea how their decision is affecting a little tiny, um, a little tiny, you know, place called Vale. Uh, and so, and honestly, the best government, right, is the one that's closest to the people. So, if we had a town of Vale, uh, if we came together and created a town of Vale, we would understand what is our biggest need. Well, right now, I think our biggest need in Vale is. Uh, perhaps we should be doing, uh, you know, we should be attracting some commercial businesses to come into Vail, uh, you know, so that people who live in Vail don't have to drive all the way into downtown Tucson to, 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 to do a job. They could maybe have, we could maybe have some localized industry. I think we should have better parks, better recreation. I mean, some of those things that our local burb needs. Uh, and if we came together and did a town, we could actually, you know, attract Low, you know, businesses like I, I wonder if we could attract like a, an automated, um, like what is the future, uh, you know, AI, like could we create an environment where we have all the infrastructure so that we could attract AI businesses to Vail? I mean, I would, that would be AI is artificial intelligence. Like it's, it's the latest in programming and, um, you, you know, could we, could we create, uh, a, a habitat by which people who are in the programming world and the AI world or whatever would love to come to Vail and would want to build businesses and, you know, that sort of, you know, safe, clean, wonderful businesses in Vail and show them all the hiking opportunities. So the other thing is just, you know, doing parks and recreation, you know, creating more roads or creating more trails uh, and trailheads and that sort of thing. I mean, it just, if we came together and created a town of Vail, I think we could make Vail you know, you know, the premier town in the whole entire United States. Um, but uh, in 2014, we decided that we didn't want to do that. So, um, so we remain a loose association of individuals here in the Vale area. Um, and so, you know, we attract no millennials whatsoever. All my children are not going to live in Vale because they don't, uh, it's just, there's nothing here for them. I'm sorry. It's just, it's just not... They want, they want something different than what we have to offer. Anyway, so um, that, is, uh, that is why uh, the, 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 the Episcopal polity has a breakdown. Uh, the Congregational polity is probably the best uh, if you want to you know, quickly um, you know, pivot from one direction to the other direction. The problem is as they pivot, are they staying um, connected to God's word and are they doing the, you know, the right thing? 
Because if each congregation is also isolated by itself, then you could have some congregations that go way, way, way off into Never Never Land because there's no accountability. So um, that's why I like this whole, um, that's really why I like the LCMS. I think the LCMS, believe it or not, uh, is a phenomenally good way to organize uh, people and congregations together. It gives congregational individual uh, individual authority to do what they need to do in their local context, but they come together and um, they, you know, they share resources together. They admonish each other. They help keep us grounded in God's word and that sort of thing. Uh, and so honestly, I do believe that uh, our polity is a phenomenally good polity. Uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that um, because particularly uh, right now, we have so many over the last, I would say, 50 to 75 years, um, there are a, the mainline Protestant congregations have just been bleeding people, uh, but other congregations have sprung up um, and mostly what they call non-denominational. And every congregation that says that it's non-denominational has a theological background. That's true. But what makes them non-denominational is that each congregation has the ability to pivot quickly to react to the world around them. Um, and so uh, we, the, we, that is, uh, that is the, a non-denominational church then is really a congregationalist type church, uh, but might have or may not have. Uh, you know, theological training from one of the mainline churches. And the thing is, is that if you go to the Didache, um, it says uh, basically appoint bishops and deacons. And so that's how they did it 2,000 years ago. But you don't have to. Uh, th there is nothing in Scripture that says that you have to have bishops and deacons. That's the way that they organized 2,000 years ago. We, and as we get into the internet age and start doing, you know, start creating churches uh, that that are heavily, uh, that heavily use the internet and people get training on the internet and, and you know, instead of in-person meetings, we do Zoom meetings or we, you know, we do training all across the, I mean, as, as we move forward, we might find a whole different church structure that is much, much more suited to relating to digital natives and to millennials um, because a digital native likes to do everything on the internet. They don't like in-person meetings at all. Uh, they like to wake up uh, and do their work online and then, they're, and then they stay at home. They never, I have digital native, I have a digital native nephew who I think still doesn't drive, um, lives in a large town. Uh, I think he's 26, 27 years old. Um, and, uh, and basically, uh, no reason to drive because you can, you know, if you live in a large town, you've got transit, you've got walking. I mean, there's just, you don't need to have a car and digital natives, that's a huge expense is to have a car. And so one of the ways to, you know, cut expenses is that you don't have a car and you do all your work from home, uh, as a digital native. And those people are just now coming into the workforce. Millennials are different. Millennials, um, are people who they want their organizations to be responsible citizens of the world. And so if you are a, if you're an organization right now that wants to attract millennials, 
then you need to be doing things like uh, solving malaria and solving world poverty and creating clean water um, because the work that you're doing in your company is important, but it's not as important as, uh, as taking uh, technology and improving the living conditions all across the world. So that's, that's where millennials' hearts are. And so if you're a church that wants to attract millennials, that's where the church's heart has to be. It has to be very outward focused towards the world. Um, if you want a church that attracts digital natives, it has to be, you have to have a huge online presence. Like right now, what I'm doing, a digital native would somewhat be att attracted to it, but I'd need to wear a beanie and I'd have to have long hair and tattoos and um, I might have to get angrier at times. Uh, but if I could do those three things uh, and talk about, you know, issues that they're struggling with, I think I would be very attractive to a digital native. Although now at my age, it just, I might not, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably too old uh, to attract digital natives. But that doesn't mean I can't be a, a pastor to a digital, aided, a digital native type person and then they could do those kind of things online. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I think the church is going. Just because the early church uh, assembled and gathered together people in one way does not necessarily mean that we have to gather and assemble people in that same way. Um, I think if there's any lesson we've learned over the last 2,000 years is that if a church wants to be effective in the world, they have to uh, be able to move and to pivot and to organize themselves uh, in a way that makes sense for the culture that they're trying to reach. And um, I really like our LCMS structure, uh, which is Congregationalist, but we're an association of congregations that come together and pool our resources. Um, but that, that may not last. When we get into the digital age, it actually may require a whole new structure. And I can't see what that structure is, but I would certainly be you know, open to having that structure because the mission is so important. The mission is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, to make disciples of all nations. And uh, that mission uh, is so important that the structure is secondary to that mission. All right, so um, I think we're gonna leave it there um, because it is a, uh, um, I think what we'll do, uh, there's also uh, the second part of 15b which is also very, very fascinating. And we'll get, uh, we'll get into 15B tomorrow. Um, and then uh, we'll get into chapter 16, which is then the end of the Didache. So let's close in prayer. Gracious God, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for this teaching. Be with us until we meet again. Keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <laughs>